recording on. Um, see, some people cannot get on. I have to figure out why. Um, let me see if this works. There you go. Okay, I sent it. Um, ouch. Pash Vaida, Rishkedish Shvat, Shvat. There's plenty to talk about just about the Shir, just about Rishkedish itself. However, I don't know if we're going to involve that today, if we're going to get to it. Um, those of us that join us tomorrow evening by the Ohel, I guess we'll talk more about Rishchei Deshvat then. Tonight is Er Lechav Ches Teves. This week was the expression goes Avad Chosid Min Haaretz. We lost a very, very dear, close. Let's leave it as friend of my father's, of myself, my children. Um, whether or not they're related, we'll never find out. The nurse wanted to check when they were both in hospital. My father. And he, the nurse wanted to check the DNA, but she didn't manage. Their stories are similar. They come from basically the same background. And this past Sunday on Chavdala Tevis, the day that Al Rebbe passed away, Rav Achosid, Rav Agoyen, Rav Avram Dev Hecht, a very, very prominent Rav, returned his soul as well. Also we had a yard side of a, the grocer, which would sound so ironic, the grocer, why would we eulogize a grocer? She was far from the average grocer, South American descent. Her parents basically had the grocery store here in Crown Heights. And when they got, as they got older, she took the business into hand, so they should have. So she supported her family, but was extremely, extremely understanding to the needs of the customers. And I don't mean product-wise. She understood when a person, Rahman al-Tzan, was suffering, when a person did not have money. She carried crazy amounts on her books. People offered her money for the books. 80 cents on a dollar, 60 cents on a dollar. She would not sell them, she did not want to put the people in a position somebody would hound them for money when they don't have after all, they didn't buy luxuries, they bought groceries. So to you, Rifki, Shamash Ravan Aliyah, and as you were a good to better for us here on this world, surely you're a good to better on that world for your child. For everyone else. Chavches Teves is the birthday of the Rebetzin, Rebetzin Chana, the Rebbe's mother. <laughs> do we need? <coughs> do we need to say more? The Rebbe's mother. 
Rebbe's mother, who made ink for her husband, Rebbevik, so he can continue writing his svarim. The Rebbe's mother, a person that the Rebbe never turned his back to, not didn't turn his back on her. He would go visit her daily. What do you think? And as he walked out from the apartment, he always backed out. He never turned around. As if he was leaving the Holy of Holies. But every day, he would go to visit his mother. (coughs) I saw an interesting story this week of the Rebbe which I think it's only right to repeat. To give you an example of the upbringing the Rebbe had, not just that the Rebbe became a Rebbe, the Rebbe was born a Rebbe, <coughs> but more so, the Rebbe's devotion to the Hasidim and dedication When Chassidim would come to pour their hearts out to the Rebbe by Yechidus in private audiences, this could go on sometimes through the night. A person could have an appointment for 10, 10.30, 11 o'clock at night and not get into the Rebbe till 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. Needless to say, the Chassid would stand trepidation with in awe and respect awaiting this moment to be able to enter the Rebbe's room there was once the Rebbe finished Yechidus the wee hours of the morning and there was still time for the Rebbe to go home and to come back to go until he comes back for Shachris and maybe even, like a human being, rest a few minutes. But instead, the Rebbe turned to his secretary, Rabbi Groner, and asked for the mail. Bear in mind, we've told recently the story, I believe, as well. The postmaster, the head postmaster of the United States, wanted to see the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Schneerson, because he wanted to see who is that person that gets more mail than the President of the United States of America on a daily basis. The Gabbai, Rabbi Groner, brought in a pile of mail. The Rebbe promptly went through with all the requests, beseechments, the problems. And he asked for another pile. And as the second pile was being finished, Rabbi Groner was looking at the clock and saying, please, I would want the Rebbe to go home, but he wouldn't dare mention such a thing. And as the Rebbe asked for a third pile... Rabbi Groner came up with an idea. I can't tell the Rebbe, I can't be brazen. So he wrote a little note, a sticky pad, a yellow, the yellow stickies. And he put it on top of the pile of mail saying, perhaps this could wait till tomorrow. So the Rebbe could go home and get some rest. So the Rebbe got the pile of mail with a note on top of the Rebbe, looked at the note, and turned to Rabbi Groner and said, you mean, should I, this note also wait till tomorrow? In other words, you want to push off everything on the pile, I'll push off everything, your note as well. I won't read your note either now. (coughs) The Rabbi continued to go through the mail. Rabbi Sinchana followed and supported Reblevik, her husband, did not leave his side for a moment, although she would have been able to travel to her own son's wedding, since she could not leave her husband, being on the other end of the world practically, in Almata. She prepared a wedding 
not a mock wedding, but rather a wedding its own in their apartment. Many, many sacrifices that Khana went through and gave up for the upbringing of her son, our Rebbe. So tonight, on her birthday, Mazola gave her. And as Mazola gave her, meaning her shine, her muzzle shines tonight, she's definitely as an Aim B Yisrael, as a mother of the Jewish nation, being a mother of the Nasi Adair, is definitely davening for us all, and her schus will definitely see to it that anything that we need on this date and henceforth should be blessed and bestowed upon us. I'd like to take a few moments of the Torah moments to talk about Rabbi Hecht. Rabbi Hecht was an American-born boy. He was 90 years old, and he was born here in America. Rabbi Hecht's father, Rabbi Yeshua, Olive Shalom, was born here in America. Rabbi Hecht's grandfather, Hashmelech, came here from Shinov, the turn of the century. In the late 1800s. Heshmelech was an interesting businessman, an intelligent fellow, immediately did what had to happen here, setting up shuls, setting up mikvahs, setting up what had to be set up. He was no Rebbe. He wasn't chasing anybody with lessons and shurim. He wanted Yidin to just stay from. He heard that the previous Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe, was going to be in the area for Shabbos. Immediately, he vacated the mikveh. He repainted it, he emptied the water. Those days he didn't change the water every day, obviously. He changed the water. He cleaned up the mikveh to the best of it could be look. And didn't let anybody in. Till the Rebbe goes to the mikveh, nobody's going in here. And the Rebbe went to the mikveh. This is 1926, I think. When the Rebbe came out of the mikveh, the Rebbe, the Rebbe came here to New York. 28? No, it 26. Maybe 28, but I think it's 26. And Friedrich Rebbe handed her Shmelech a $10 bill. Tremendous amount of money those days. They say the American children are getting much stronger than they were 50, 80 years ago. Because 60, 70 years ago, you had to send three or four, nine, ten-year-old children, eleven-year-old children, to the store to buy twenty-five dollars worth of groceries. In order for the to be able to be carried home, you had to send a couple of children. Today, you send your eight-year-old, and they buy twenty-five dollars worth of groceries and bring it home by themselves. So obviously, the children are getting much stronger. <coughs> If you catch me on that logic, I not much I can do about it. The um, Friedrich Rebbe offered him ten dollars, and he told the Rebbe, "Chas v'sholom, chas v'sholom." I should take money from the Rebbe. I have to give the Rebbe money, not the Rebbe give me money. The Rebbe was very taken aback. The Rebbe said, 
I want to give you something. So the Rebbe told him, can I give you a bracha? Can I give you a blessing? Hashemelech agreed. And the Fidik Rebbe blessed him that his grandchildren should be his chassidim. Hashemelech's grandchildren should be chassidim of Chabad. And as we know, his son Shia had six sons. Shlomo Zalman, Oliver Shalom, Meisha, Yitzchak, Oliver Shalom, Yaakov Yehuda, Oliver Shalom, Rav Peretz, Oliver Shalom, Rav Avram, Dave Shalom, Oliver Shalom, and Saal Lang Gizun Tefreil Chiyarin, Rav Shalom, Shavar Afuah Shleimah Kreva. The Friedrich Rebbe said on the six boys, she is six boys. They are like the Shisha Sidre Mishnah. The six volumes of Mishnah. So Rabbi Avram, as you join your other four brothers and your ancestors, Feta Avram, as we call you, we want to just tell a few tidbits that we heard about you. Aside for serving as a rabbi in a Syrian community and literally making it grow and flourish, it is what it is today only because of him. <coughs> he had a very powerful powerhouse brother, influential and dynamic, named Rabbi Yaakov Yehuda Hecht, J.J. Hecht. Rabbi J.J. Hecht was once offered after the war, after World War II, to come to Germany to speak to all the American soldiers, <coughs> all the Jewish soldiers. Rabbi J.J. went to the Rebbe and told him what was asked of him. The Rebbe smiled and said to J.J., Maybe it's a better idea that your brother Avram goes. There was no questions asked when the Rebbe said such a thing. He went to his brother Avram and told him what the Rebbe said. Avram didn't think twice. If this is what the Rebbe said, the Rebbe said. Avram traveled to Germany and spoke and again and again from one place to the next he was shown all the great, wonderful sights that there are in that cursed country. The night, the last day he was there, one of the wives of a soldier, or of a chaplain, came over and said, Rabbi Hecht, I have to tell you something. I had a dream last night. I dreamt, she says, Rabbi Hecht was standing in front of thousands of people. No, she said thousands. Very large crowd of people. And was waving his hand. We asked him, where are we going? And he said, we are going to greet Mashiach. We are going to greet Mashiach. This was Rabbi Avram's attitude. And although in a very, very edle fashion, very refined, distinguished, he was a man that didn't have to ask the respect, didn't have to demand his respect, it came on automatic pilot. You looked at him, you revered him. When his wife Nebuch was lifted, she died in a fire. He moved here to Crown Heights, around the corner from us. And he moved into his new apartment. He needed things set up. Baruch Hashem, his children 
He's very blessed that his children are all ashlichas all over the world. They're all emissaries of the Rebbe. So what's statement? you got to find someone to, to help you. So he called us up here, because I live right around the corner. And he said, Yitzhak, I don't want you, I want one of the kids. I sent over two of my children to his apartment. His phone lines, his, jack, his, fax, his fax lines, he had to get them plugged in, the wires. So I'm not letting your father climb under the table for me, he said. The kindle have to do that. And they did, with great love. The weekly Dvar Malchus came out that people use the Sechitas and Rambam. Very, very convenient. He couldn't go to the stores already to go shopping. My Mendy used to go every week and bring him his Dvar Malchus. Sometimes used to bring him a little container of herring too while I was at it. And he used to make sure Mendy had his pocket money. Hey Mendel, you have your pocket money every week. Truthfully, I could go on and on, but I'm going to leave it at this. Just saying that Rabbi Avram, the Rebbe told you, when you were being too idle, and you were worried about talking in the UN, what's going to happen? Will they allow you? Will they not allow you? What will you say? The Rebbe said, if you're lacking chutzpah, take some from your brother Yaakov Yehuda. He'll give you what you're lacking. He's got plenty. <coughs> yeah, I have to know the characters in the story to really appreciate it. In this week's parasha, though, we see a very similar problem. Moshe Rabbeinu says to the Almighty, Eich Yishmeini Farai Vani Aral Sifasayim Sorry, the Pesach begins, Hein, they, B'nai Yisrael, Eishamu Elai The Jews did not listen to me. Eich Yishmeini Farai Vani Aral Sifasayim how will Pari listen to me if I miss my lips are sealed? <laughs> terrible, terrible joke. <laughs> but it'd be pretty nasty to leave out at this point. And Chasra Shalomti making fun of Meshur Rabbeinu. But a fellow was walking on the street and he sees a friend and he says, The Moshe didn't stutter, by the way. He just didn't talk clearly. Excuse me. Do you not know where the school for stutterers is? So the guy looks at him and says, What do you need it for? You stutter perfectly. Uh, Moshe Rabbeinu had a speech <coughs> impediment by which he says therefore to the Ebishter Hein b'nei Yisrael le'shom o'elai Eich yishmeni pari v'niaral s'fasayim but the actual translation doesn't work it should be Eich yishmeni pari Translation is a little different though. Moshe tells the Almighty, Hey, they, B'nai Yisrael did not listen to me, would not listen to what I'm telling them, they're going out of Egypt. They said, Moshe, leave it alone. We are comfortable. We are happy. We are settled. We have jobs, we have homes, whatever they are, they're painful. We're being tortured, but we're used to it already. So, hey, B'nai Yisrael, they're not listening to me. Eich, Moshe Rabbeinu asked the Almighty, what will be 
Yishmaini Fari, if Pare does listen and says, okay, take the Jews out, I'll have my lips sealed. I won't be able to say anything. Pare will say, go, go, go. And the Jews will say, no, no, no. Sometimes it's better unsaid. As a matter of fact, the Taylor tells us sometimes you should not say it. If you know that someone is not going to listen to you, you should not do it. You should not reprimand. Only your friend should you reprimand who you know you will accomplish something with. Maybe Saul of Vizhnitz had an interesting custom every evening. <coughs> He'd go for a walk for a half an hour. <coughs> he would take his gabai with him. One evening they came to the house of a bank manager who was known as a maskal, a, uh, a thinker from the Enlightenment movement. He knocked on the door and the Moscow saw the Rebbe, the vision said Rebbe, he let him in, the Gabai, very cordial, he sat him down, the Rebbe sat where he was offered and just sat, didn't say a word. After a long moment the man turned to the Gabai and said, why is he here? The Gabai said, I don't know. Finally, the Tzadik picked himself up and left. And the man, out of respect, although didn't believe in Chassidim and his Torah thoughts, his Torah way, but he had such a distinguished visitor he he accompanied him and he walked and he walked with him to his home and as he got to the house he plotzed and he said excuse me Rebbe what was that why did you just come to my house sit in my house and not say a word And the Rebbe said, I came to fulfill a mitzvah. So what mitzvah? And the Rebbe explained, just like it's a mitzvah to tell somebody something that they will listen to, it's a mitzvah not to tell somebody something they won't listen to. For me to sit at home and not tell you what I have to tell you for you not to listen to is not is a mitzvah. But I'm not, a, I'm not really doing anything. I have to come to your house and not tell you so that I can do the mitzvah. So whatever, what mitzvah is it? Maybe I'll do it. Please, Rebbe, tell me. I'm afraid not. As a matter of fact, I'm sure you won't. So I can't tell you. And the more that Rebbe refused, the more the person said was more determined, I'm going to do it, but please just tell me what it is. I'm plotting. And the Rebbe said, fine. There's a penniless widow... whose house is mortgaged in your bank. (coughs) The bank is foreclosing on the house. And in very short time, they're selling her house. She'll be put out with a bunch of orphans. I wanted to ask you, 
Maybe the bank can overlook this debt and just wipe the debt. Swallow it and let her go. And let her have the house. The bank manager started to scream, Rebbe, I don't own the bank. I'm a manager. I'm only a manager. I don't have a power to just forgive a debt. The Rebbe said, you see, I told you you wouldn't listen. I told you. I, didn't, I, I shouldn't have said it. And the Rebbe went home, and the fellow went home, and the fellow started to harp, harper, harbor the thoughts, and started to harp on it. <laughs> Somebody on Skype just sent me a message. He's, a, he's of the enlightened group. <laughs> Ay, ay, ay. the fellow harped, couldn't take it anymore he plotted and he took out his own money and he paid the woman the way he paid the debt for the widow for the widow so the vision to accomplish what he had to accomplish by not saying what he wanted to say the pasha begins I appear to Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. <coughs> Rashi, who is obviously always there for the Bechomish, the Mikra, adds, Ve'eda, what does it mean, Allah, always to the forefathers. I appeared to the forefathers. Immediately everyone asks Rashi, what's wrong with you, Rashi? It says, Ve'eda, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. We know they are the forefathers. What are you adding with this word? Let us first understand what was the Aveda? What was the service? How did the forefathers serve the Almighty? The first was Avram, Abraham. Abraham served the Almighty through love. Pasik tells us, Avraham Oyavai, my beloved Abraham. There was a love relationship with God. Yitzchak, Isaac, his mother was Yira. His attribute was fear. And again, the Pasik says, Pachad Yitzchak, the fear of Yitzchak. And Yaakov was Rachamim, and Tiferes. It's just plain, always with kindness, compassionate. He was a hippie. So when it comes to attributes, when it comes to the way a service of a person serves anything or does anything with Midas, with The, apart from the Mida itself being of a great stature, it also brings about how the person fo- follows through with what he's going to do. So Avram was love, Yitzchak was kindness. Yitzchak was fear. Fear and Yaakov's kindness. And therefore the love is the is the actual root of our 248 limbs of the 248 mitzvahs I say of the positive commandments the fear is the 365 negative commandments someone who loves the almighty wants to attach himself to the almighty <coughs> someone who fears the almighty does not want to sin against the Almighty And the same with any other the Midas, as the Alter Rebbe explains in Tanya. And it's so too when the Torah tells us the Aksamora, tells us the two opposites 
And as Hashem Elikecha Tira, you should love the Almighty, or you should fear the Almighty. Both are commandments of the Torah. But Rashi tells us, there is a difference the way a servant that loves his master serves him, and a servant that fears his master serves him. The servant that fears his master by the first inkling that he could possibly get away with something, he does it. Because the fear factor is not in effect. But if one that loves his master will never lose or miss an opportunity to serve his master. Now we understand why Rashi is telling us not only Avraham Yitzchak Yaakov, but Ela Ovois. Because the Kalal is, the generalization is, Maisa Ovois Simin Labonim. Our forefathers were paved, paved the path for us, they were trailblazers. And therefore, this is how we understand. That although it was Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, they loved, they feared to the Ebishter, that was not their main attribute. But the main thing was they were called Avais. Their regish, their feelings affected their, their offsprings. And therefore their offsprings are their imaisim taivim. And based on that, as we said, Yaakov leimais, since his maisim taivim do not die, he too lives on. And going back once more to Rabbi Rabbi Chosid, Rabbi Goyen, Rabbi Bram, Dave, Ben Yeshua, Zatzal, don't usually use this Zatzal, Zal, His work, his path that he has paved, the hearts that he has touched, and Baruch Hashem, he once told his children, I don't need you to fill my shoes, I need you to follow my footsteps. Fill his shoes. I don't know who could undertake. Follow in his footsteps. I don't know who wouldn't want to. Uh oh. Call went down for a change. Welcome to the wonderful world of Skype. Yeah. I don't know who's still on and who's not. Anyway. Please type on the screen if you're still on. If you still hear us. Everything that the Almighty created in this world, He created for the Jews. Now, obviously, the question will be Yeah, He created everything for the Jews. Beautiful idea. If you're back on, please let me know. Type it in. No. Nobody's back on yet. I don't know. If you don't hear, according to my computer, this line is still open. I've lost people. Please text if you're not on. Oh boy.
Pasuk tells us, and it's a very ironic concept. Terry tells us that the Almighty tells Aaron, tells Moshe, go out there, go to Paran, and tell them to let the Jews go. <laughs> but then he tells them, Vani, I'm going to harden his heart. And he's not going to let them go. No matter what we do to them. <coughs> so Rashi explains. It's good, says the Almighty, for Mike's sake. That I harden his heart. The man harbes as I say, say, so that I can add in my signs, and it be recognizable my strength. And the Almighty smites and punishes the nations of the world so the Jews should learn and hear. Wow! If a nation, a non-Jewish nation, which is obligated to keep the seven Noahide laws, which incidentally Avram Hecht was very, very instrumental, very involved. Right. Someone called me up and said, hey, Rabbi, I hope not. I'll check. <laughs> <laughs> well, seriously, he called me up and said, hey, Rabbi, I'm No, he's 90. Yeah, that's I'm that's not that yet. No, a few years still. Uh, <laughs> he was very, very involved in the Sheva Mitzvah's B'nai Neach. A nation is not behaving and not doing what they're supposed to. Is that not enough a reason for the Almighty to punish them? Stoimva, Meira, etc. So, what does it mean when he says, that the Midah of the Abishta is that he brings punishment on the non Jews? Not because they did wrong, but so the Jews should see, hear, and learn from it. What is that supposed to mean? Got a little issue here. Try to turn it back on again. I'm not getting you back. Okay, those who have the cameras off have the cameras off, but anyone has the camera on, I don't see you. I don't know why. It's a problem with the call again. Skype is having one of those tonight. They're having a bad hair day. We can explain this by introducing the Chazal, our sages tell us. As we said before, the world was created for, me. for the Jews and for the Torah. <coughs> Since they are the essence reason, I have Skype Premium. You read time. Oh, okay. There we go. Since they are the essence of the Torah. the essence of the creation, therefore everything that goes on in the world is involved because of the Jews. 
even though it might look like something else is happening to these people because something they did or whatever it might be. And therefore it would make sense that they should be punished. Tells us that Taylor know it's being a punishment is because the Jews have to see and learn from it. For even if the on the outside it looks like the punishment is only a them alone. The nation sins and the Almighty punishes. But this too is only for the Jewish nation to learn. So the Jews should hear and see. And this therefore is actually Pari. He made the heart of Pari. He hardened the heart of Pari so that Pari should refuse so the Jews should be able to see what the Almighty does for them. Moshe and Aaron come before Pari, and they say, let our people go. The Almighty said, let my people go. And Pari's reaction is, who? Almighty who? I don't know any such God. So the Almighty says to them, take the staff, and perform a miracle with the staff. We know, last week, we read, as Moshe stood in front of the burning bush, the Almighty said, throw the staff down. <coughs> and it turned to a snake. Obviously the message will tell us the snake was not a uh, garden snake. It was quite a serpent. Then the Almighty says, grab its tail. And it returned back to the status of a staff. But here in this case, Aaron throws down the staff, and the staff turns into a snake. Turns into a snake, and the all the astrologists. And the magicians of Paris court did the same thing. Took their staffs, threw it to the ground, and it also turned to snakes. Don't take the door off, it's not a door prize. But the Taylor tells us a very intriguing expression. It doesn't say that the snake of Aaron swallowed the snakes of the, of the magicians. It says, His staff swallowed their staffs. So it was not the snake which technically was a bigger snake than the other snakes and therefore ate them. But rather, when it turned back into a staff, it ate the other staffs. We don't find though, 
that Aaron is commanded to take the staff and make it back into a staff. Sorry, to take the snake and turn it back into a staff. Why? Let us understand miracles. Let us take, for example, the miracle of Kriyas Yamsuf, the splitting of the Reed Sea. The Pasik tells us, Ruach, Kodim Azakalalaila. There was a constant wind blowing and keeping the walls standing. And the moment that the wind ceased, the water returned flowing. So the miracle that was transpiring was every moment the water kept trying to move but it wasn't allowed to move. It stood like a wall. (coughs) That's one way of a miracle. That on a constant basis the miracle has to prevail. Then we saw Moshe Rabbeinu was told by the the burning bush put your hand inside your shirt and he took it out and it was white leprosy. Almost looking natural. But when he put his hand back inside his shirt it was all gone. The leprosy was clean. So the miracle did not have to constantly reinforce, but rather it took its own course. The miracle was one time it was leprosy, and one time it became clean again. The miracle changed the entire essence. In order to undo the essence, to return it, to its original status, it needed another miracle. On the first miracle, when his hand turned white, it was white. It was now a leprosy hand. In order to revert back to a regular hand, it needed a miracle to do that. Therefore, we see now the difference between the two staffs: the staff that had to be held onto the onto the tail. And the staff that now just turned back, reverted back to a staff on its own. In Pasha Shemais, the staff was a lesson to Moshe. Moshe said, The Jews will not listen to me. In essence, this was considered as if he spoke Loshan Hara. He blasphemed the Jewish nation. And therefore the punishment was leprosy. He needed to hold on to the tail of the snake. So the Almighty showed him the concept of the snake. And therefore it now turned, reverted back now that he was holding, he got his handle on it, it reverted back. Only because he held on to it. But in our parsha, when the staff was only to show the greatness of the Almighty, it was not a punishment for Lashon Hara or anything else. Therefore, the miracle was like in the first case. It, it constantly was staying in a form of, mir- of miracle. 
And as soon as the miracle ceased, it, it ceased as well. The miracle changed the staff to a scorpion, to a snake, to a serpent. And when the miracle of changing a staff to a serpent left, it reverted back to a staff. With Mesha, it had to have a lesson. And therefore it was a scorp- it was a, it was a serpent. It was a serpent reminding him of all the horrific things that it comes from. Reminding him of how the serpent spoke to Adam and Chava back in Elam Haba in the beginning of creation. In Gan Eden. Amongst the many miracles... that transpire of the different plagues that were brought upon the Egyptians. When it came to the boils, to the Shechin, Rashi tells us, At this point, the Khartoumi Mitzrayim the magicians, shall we call them, could no longer stand in front of Moshe. What was so ayayay about the skin for the boils? The frogs attacked the entire nation. And if you listen to the archives, you'll hear how we describe the frogs, the Makkah, and their Messias Nefesh. The blood left them with nothing to drink the locust Shin this blew them out of the water what was so phenomenal about the Shin we find something by Maka Shin that we didn't find anywhere else Mesha and Aaron were commanded to do something physical to bring about this plague. By the dam, they just had to stand by the water, lift up their hands. Tzvadeya, they just had to go whistle and say, okay, frogs, everybody out of the pool. You don't remember that part, huh? They didn't say everybody out of the pool. No, the frogs didn't come that way, no. But they also didn't... uh, they didn't do anything physical by the Shechin they took the Piyach Yivshon and they threw it they threw this flaming coals or or, or sands leftover tobacco and another thing each one had to take handfuls, Aaron and Moshe. Wasn't enough hand of Malichafnam. And another thing, Moshe had to throw it with all his might, so as if it reached out through the entire Egypt. But on the other hand, Everybody was sure and positive that the truth of the matter is this whole action was for naught. This throwing of these coals or these burning ashes, whatever they were, they weren't even hot anymore. <laughs> they weren't even hot, first of all. <coughs> As Moshe threw them with all his might, it was impossible that it would still reach over through the entire land of Egypt. This is therefore what the Khatumi could not understand. They could not stand in front of Moshe. They couldn't find their hands or their feet for this, as the expression goes. Although the other ones, all the other Makis, they understood the Almighty just sent that plague. 
this plague, it seemed almost seemingly that there had to have the physical action done by Maishanar in order to bring it about. But yet, the physical action they did was totally not connected to what ultimately came out, the outcome. This is therefore what they could not understand and grasp. What are you doing? I am making a fundraiser. And the Rebbe and Hashem is going to help me that my fundraiser is going to be a smashing case. Amen. If not, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. Tomorrow the fundraiser should be a slacher out in the flogger. Oh my. All the makis, all the punishments to entire nations, the old Jews should learn and see the lessons and understand how the Almighty brought this, brings this about for us and for our sake and for our betterment. And ultimately, we should see, as the beginning of Geula begins with this parsha, as Va'eda is the first seven makis, because Va'eda starts with the letters Vav and Aleph, which is numerical value of seven, and Bay is numerical value of three. That's how we know this parsha has seven plagues, and next parsha has three. But before we have to come on to the last three plagues, from the seven plagues themselves, we should all merit to the Geula Mitzvah Shlema, Rivki, our grocer, the Avram Dave, Rav Achosid, Avram Dave and Rabbi Yeshua, and Abitzin Chana, whose birthday is tonight, will all join us in Hakitzu Veranenu Sheikh Mayafar, and not only Beseicham but Bereisham. They will lead us all together with our Rebbe who will lead us all out of Golis on tonight, and will all be the Shabbos in Yerushalayim, Yer HaKodesh, Shabbat Shalom to all. I hope next week, by the way, you got the invitation for next Saturday night's Malava Malka. So I am looking forward to having you for Shabbos. Shabbat Shalom. Did you hear about Iran's cousin? Yes, that's what I was talking about.